What a great day this is, and welcome to our friends in Windsor with whom we are live streaming today. I love this week. Uh, it's the single most significant week in human history. This week, around the world, more than two billion people will be celebrating something connected to this week. It's the largest Jewish festival time in history, it's the Passover. We don't comprehend Passover very well, I don't think. We don't have anything in American culture that would connect with what Jesus experienced in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago at Passover when all the pilgrims came back and, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the space. And it, it's sort of, for us, it would be Fourth of July and Memorial Day on, on steroids or something. It's a huge thing, but we'll talk more about that later. But today, Palm Sunday weekend is about what happened in this week 2,000 years ago. That week changed the world, and a king was at the center of it. Now, we American types, we, we don't do kings very well. I mean, our whole form of government, you know, people talk to me, it's such a mess in Washington, D.C., can't you help or something? I mean, it's just, well, it's a mess because we didn't want a king. If there were a king there, it wouldn't be a mess. It might be brutal, but it wouldn't be a mess. Because the, the systems we have in play are checks and balances and it's supposed to take time and it's sloppy and it's not, you know, all of that. A king is very efficient. He'll, he'll take your money and take your kids and take your land and take your head. That's how it works. Unless you're a good king, and we're talking about a good king this morning. Uh, but, but we just, we don't get royalty very well. I mean, we might be interested in, in uh, Prince William and Kate's new baby or something, but we're not really into it all that much. But Ruth and I were in Wales in 2002. We were driving along down the Bristol Channel, and we came to a town called Newport, a small city, and we drove in, and we noticed there were barricades on various streets, and as we got closer to the center of town, it was all barricaded. And, and we pulled over and said to one of the citizens, what's going on? And they said, the queen is coming. This is her jubilee year, 50 years. And we said, well, let's hang out. Let's come hang out with the queen. And so we got parked the car and got out. And, and there wasn't very much security. It was amazing. And we were about from here to there when her, her Bentley pulled up. Bentley or Rolls or something. And, and Prince Philip got out. And he's very young. And then she got out with her lime green dress and her lime hat. And, and uh, somebody had given to us. Flags. So we had the flag of Wales and the Union Jack, and she gets out, and the place goes nuts, and we're waving these guys, and we're from the colonies. We're not even into the Queen. You know what I'm saying? We're, we're not there. But there's something about royalty. There's something about monarchy. And today we're going to hear about and talk about when a king showed up. It's interesting because... This story is about God's dream for his people. And usually when I speak, I will have a text and I'll wrap stories around it. People come up and say, you tell stories. You know, that's what. And uh, I love stories. But this is the best story. And so today the text is a story. And so this is the one we're going to tell. The Gospels are the story of Jesus. Okay? The Gospels come right there in the Bible. That much... Right there is all we have, essentially, about Jesus. Right there. And in those four writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about a third of what they write about is the last seven weeks of Jesus' 33-year life. 
Seven weeks takes seven takes about a third of this. If you're reading the Gospel of John, it's almost half given to the last seven weeks. And you say, why would that be? Well, if somebody's going to die, I think my experience is that they tell you their best stuff toward the end. That they say this is really important. And there are several texts about today that are listed on the top of your bulletin. I'd encourage you to look at those. They only take you five or ten minutes. And it gives you a sense for what this day is about. But Jesus has already had a big week back down the hill. Jerusalem sits at about 3,200 feet in elevation. But just earlier in the week, in the last week or ten days, he's been in Jericho. Jericho sits in the Jordan River Valley, 800 feet below sea level, about 15 miles from Jerusalem depending on, as the crow flies, but you've got to wind up or it's longer than that. But, but he's been down there, and as he came through, Jer- through Jericho, and you can read this in the Gospels, a bunch of things happened, because things are heating up. As he gets closer to the mark, things start going faster, and we'll speak to that in a moment. But he comes through Jericho, and there's a blind fellow there by the name of Bartimaeus. Some of you remember that. And he's screaming from the side of the road, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus heals his eyes. And then Jesus walks through town, and there's a guy who's not blind, but he wants a better look. And he's a rip-off guy. He's a tax collector, a little short guy named Zacchaeus. He's up a tree and out on a limb. You, some of you know that feeling. That's where he is. And Jesus calls him down and goes to his house for the day. I've called these comments, the king is in the house. When Jesus comes to your house, everything changes. It's a whole different deal. So Zacchaeus... He sees, Bartimaeus sees Zacchaeus, really starts seeing, and then young moms come. Now, it doesn't say young mothers. It says people bring their little babies to Jesus to bless them like these over here. And, and the disciples are saying, no, no, we got heavy teaching going on. It's a folk paraphrase. we got heavy teaching. You need to keep those people away because the little kids and women don't count in that culture. And Jesus says, no, no. It says he was ticked. He was indignant. He said, let these little ones come to me because these This is what the kingdom looks like. Somebody who's absolutely trusting, absolutely dependent. Those are the people that get into my kingdom. And then there's a a Jewish mother who's the mother of two of the disciples, James and John. She comes to them. She's trying to negotiate sort of a better place at the table. You can almost see her. These are good boys. You know, one sits here. We get one over. It'll be good. You know, trust me. I mean, you can see it. Okay. So he's, he's had that all week. It's already picking up speed. And he comes up into Jerusalem, and the Bernoulli principle kicks in. Bernoulli was an Italian fellow that discovered that when you take a volume of something that's in a big space and you put it in a narrower space, the pressure is less and it goes faster. That's what's happening here. Here's the big plan of God for all of creation and for the redemption of the world. And over these last 33 years, it's been doing this and this. And in this last week, it does this. And that goes into effect, like March Madness in basketball. We start with 64 teams, and now we're down to four. You know, bam, it's like that, okay? Listen to one of the texts that talks about Palm Sunday. This is Luke, the 19th chapter. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. 
They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, put Jesus on it. And he went along. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. It's sort of like covering up the potholes, if you will. It's preparing the way. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Lazarus had just been healed a little bit before. That was big news in town. Or, excuse me, not healed, raised from the dead. Blessed is the king... Catch the word. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This week in Jesus' day is Jewish Passover. And in this text, Jesus is coming to that festival, to that event. You say, what is Jewish Passover? Some of you know what that is. Many of you know what that is. But let's just look at it for a moment. I want to set a context for this Jesus, his coming out day, if you will, as king, Messiah. Point one on your bulletins is Passover week is a celebration of freedom. Passover week is a celebration of freedom. You say, where did it begin? Well, way back, 1,300 years before Jesus, the Hebrew people were enslaved to the Egyptians And they'd been slaves for 400 years. I mean, a huge long time. I mean, it was generational slavery. Generation after generation born into slavery. They knew nothing else. And um, God is wanting Pharaoh to bend his neck and let them go. And he sends a series of plagues, all kinds of terrible things. And no movement. And finally, the last one comes, and it's the killing of the firstborn child. To get him to release his grip on these hundreds of thousands of people, if you will. There was one thing that would save him, and that is if they killed a spring lamb and put the blood on the doorposts. And the Hebrews knew to do that. And that night was a terrible night in Egypt. And that's the night they came out. They left. They ran for their lives, led by an 80-year-old shepherd named Moses, who had been raised in the palace of Pharaoh, but killed a guy, so he didn't want to go back. He's wanted for murder and all that. It's a very interesting story, better than TV. You can read it in Exodus. But the, but the point is, you have this, this whole thing going on, and Passover became their national marker as a nation. Point two, Moses and David... Frame the story. Moses and David in Jewish history frame the story. 1,300 years before Jesus, Moses led the Hebrew people out. 300 years later, King David led the people up. He gave them their national identity. They came to their greatest prominence under King David, whose base was Jerusalem, the city. So here you have the Exodus, 1300 B.C. You have Moses. At a thousand, or excuse me, you have David. You see, you've got Moses here, David here. A thousand years later, here comes Jesus riding on a donkey. Okay? The closest we Americans might have to Moses and David in our culture in terms of national identity and freedom would be like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. That, that sort of context. But as they went along and after David, the kingdom divided. The people wandered off and they worshipped other gods besides the one that brought them out. Jehovah, Yahweh brought them out. And they got fascinated by the people around them and they started worshipping pagan gods. And the prophets would come along and say, hey, not over there, over here. Don't you remember who brought you out of Egypt? Remember Israel who set you free. 
Well, they didn't listen. They went into captivity. And for 400 years, until the time of Jesus, there was no prophet in Israel until this wild man, Jesus' relative, six months older, named John the Baptist, came out of the desert, dressed in funny ways, eating crazy stuff, you know, saying, turn around, here's the kingdom over here. They were looking... The people in Jerusalem on this day were looking for a king like David, sort of a combination of Moses and David. They wanted a Messiah king. This was a huge deal. Well, 33 years before, when Jesus was born as a baby, prophecies were all about that he was coming, but they didn't recognize him as a baby. And now he lived for 30 years as a carpenter up in the hills, working in a little town. Three years before this, he goes public. And they still didn't get it. They would say things, isn't this, uh, I know he's doing good stuff like healing blind people, so, but isn't he the son of Joseph the carpenter? And, and besides, can any good thing come out of that podunk little town up there, that Nazareth? And his message was essentially the same as John the Baptist. Turn around, here's the kingdom of God. And they turn around expecting a King David kind of person with marching armies and bands and all kinds of troops. And here stands a 30-year-old carpenter with splinters in his hands and calluses. And, stuff. and they're saying, that, that can't be the kingdom. But on this day, the king shows up. On this day, Jesus rides into town. And he's on the clock, if you'll allow me that. The timer is set. In God's economy, it was set a long time ago. But everything starts coming together in this week. God's plan for reconciling the world to himself was on the clock. His precise and intricate plan that comes around a specific feast that features sacrificed lambs and celebrating freedom. Even a donkey is prophesied. Zechariah 9.9 says... See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It, down to that specific kind of thing. Well, because Lazarus has been raised from the dead, the PR team is out. They've been saying the prophet from Galilee is coming. I mean, you've got a lot of people in town. Jerusalem in, in Jesus' day was probably 40,000, 50,000. But at Passover time, this pilgrim festival where people came from all over the Mediterranean basin, you probably have a quarter of a million to 300,000 people. They are jammed into the space and around it. You got tents on the hillsides. You got, and the city had literally been scrubbed. Scrubbing of the streets, the cleaning of the temple. Of course, they had 7,000 priests, a lot of Levites, always cleaning the temple. Here's the temple, and it's shining in the morning sun. And you've got more troops than you usually have in Jerusalem because the Romans are saying these Jewish people go crazy on those festival days. Let's get more troops. And so they got more troops in. And here are these people jamming the streets. And, you know, there are thousands of lambs that are going to be sacrificed, according to Passover, on Thursday, this coming Thursday, thousands of lambs. So you've got all of these animals. You've got all of this stuff. Going. You've got crowded streets. You've got hawkers on the streets selling everything you can imagine. You've got money changes in the temple and their like. You've got food sellers shouting. You've got children playing tag between clumps of people. It's noise is crazy. If you've ever been in a Middle Eastern bazaar, I mean, it's the whole city is like this. And this was Sunday, the day after their Sabbath. And Jesus rides into town. There are lots of players. You've got his disciples. You've got religious leaders. You've got political factions. You've got a lot of people who want to leverage Jesus' overwhelming popularity to get a leader for them. They want this Moses-David combination. And they want it for their purposes. Someone to lead them out and lead them up one more time like happened a thousand years ago. One of those wanting that right now in a political way, apparently, was a fellow named... Judas, 
He had his own agenda for Jesus. And he was seeing that Jesus wasn't going to fulfill his agenda. Get these these Romans off of us. That's what he wanted. He wanted a revolution. And he didn't understand Jesus was revelation. And I, I think I understand a little bit of Judas. I think there are a lot of times that I sort of have my agenda for Jesus. I say, Jesus, I want you to do something, but I'd like you to do it like this. None of you have been there, but I'm just saying that, you know, it's easy for us to do that. We see him more as a consultant than as a king sometimes. Well, point number three, two people know what they're going to do, Judas and Jesus. Two people know what they're going to do this week, Judas and Jesus. Can you see Judas? He's frustrated that Jesus wouldn't go his way. He had a short nationalistic view. Jesus had the eternal view. He says, if I can't get a revolution, I'll sell out. I'll take the money and run. I'll put a price on Jesus. Let's see how far that gets him. You've heard me say this many times, but the value of an object is determined by the price someone is willing to pay for it. Anybody who's ever sold a car or a house or tried stuff on eBay or Craigslist, you know this. The value of an object is determined by what somebody else is willing to pay for it. Before the week was out, Judas would set a value on Jesus, 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus would set a value on us, on you and on me. You've heard me say it before. I believe, a friend of mine used to say this, I believe Jesus went to the cross to set the price on us so high that he could never be outbid. By week's end, both Judas and Jesus would be dead. Judas would be done. Jesus would be just starting. And Jesus was young. He was 33. That's young for me. That, I mean, that's almost a kid. So if you're there, you're just a kid compared to where, I, you know, now if you're 10 years old, a 33-year-old, is, their life's almost over. But, uh, you know, for, for us who are a bit older, 33, that's, that's young And the disciples had been with him for three years, so they knew him pretty well. But there was one person in the crowd who had been with him for 33 years. And that was his mother, Mary. Point four. One person has a unique place in this drama, and that's Mary. She had him probably when she was 15-ish. Young girls were married to older men back in the day. You didn't have to love them. You just had to respect them. You could grow to love them. But that's how it was worked out. still is in lots of places in the Middle East. And when Jesus was born and she had the revelation, when the angels came to her and said, now this is how it's, this is how it's going to be. And this person will save your people from their sins and it will bless the nation. She's just a teenager. She can't get her head around that. It says that she pondered these things in her heart. How could she know what that meant? How could she know what to expect? Last month I had the privilege of speaking at a retreat on the coast of California. And the music for the retreat... It was a fellow named Buddy Green. Buddy Green is a Nashville musician, wonderful heart for Jesus, unbelievable harmonica player. I mean, if go to Buddy Green on Google and watch him play uh, William Tell Overture on the harmonica. It's just crazy. But he sang a song that some of you know, and I want you to hear it this morning because it fits. It gives us a sense for who Mary is, and it's called Mary, Did You Know?
Mary, didn't you know your baby boy will one day walk on water? Mary, didn't you know your baby boy will save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, didn't you know your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, didn't you know your baby boy will calm a storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When you've kissed your little baby, then you've kissed the face of God. him life among all the blood that happens at a birth and she watched him die among all the blood that would happen five days later she'd been here before with him she's almost 50 years old now here in Jerusalem and she'd been here before 21 years before she'd probably been there more than that but they came she and Joseph brought brought Jesus for Passover and they lost him remember that it's not good to lose the Messiah and they they lost him in Jerusalem and and they didn't find him for several days she didn't know that this week coming up she'd lose him again but she'd find him again in a few days this week point five this week changes everything forever for three years 
He has been the son of Joseph the carpenter, the son of man, rabbi, prophet, and some had hoped and guessed that he was the Messiah. When he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? They named several people. And then Peter says, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he said, you got it right, Peter. On this, I will build my kingdom, my church. But he said, don't tell anybody. The timing is not right yet. The timing is not right. You know, people had wanted to come to Jerusalem earlier and, and crown him king. And other people had tried to kill him earlier. Neither had worked. And now this is the day. But on this day, the world would know who he was. So when the power brokers say, tell, tell those people to stop calling you that, he says, if these people are quiet, the stones will cry out. The king is in the house, but he's a disturbing king. He's a suffering servant riding on a donkey. He's one who listens. He's a king who listens. He inclines his ear to you. He has our best in mind, but it's a battle. Everything will be turned on its head by week's end. All of these things come together. He's the challenger who speaks to holiness and money and humility and marriage and the meaning of life. He refuses to be baited by silly questions. He goes to the temple. He goes to God's place. And there people are exchanging stuff and doing things they shouldn't. And he turns over their tables. And you can hear the shouts of the angry people and the flapping of double wings as the, as the cages shatter. And you can hear the coins pinging off the stone floor. Within the next five days, what were cheers on this day turned to jeers by Friday. On Friday, almost everyone will run away, except for a few women, including Mary, and one disciple left at the cross. And on that day, it's almost like creation reacts. There's a huge earthquake, hammers Jerusalem like a fist on that day. They were looking for a superman, and what they got was the real man. Who walks into pain and understands ours. It even felt like his father had left him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of us know how that feels. Where, where'd you go? Where are you, God, when I need you? We know that feeling. Two things were nailed to the cross that Friday. A brutalized man whose back had been so flayed by a cat of nine tails that you could probably see his ribs through his back. They nailed him to the cross, and on the top they nailed a board that had three lines. They were in Latin and Greek and Hebrew. Pilate had said, we'll give him a title, and it says, Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. It's Pilate's way of saying, take that from the Emperor Caesar. You're some pretender king. You don't know what kingship. Caesar's the king, so you take that. It was a cynical, sarcastic statement that was 100% wrong. This was not Jesus, the Nazarene king of the Jews. This was Jesus, the Nazarene king of the world. This was Redeemer King Jesus. This is the Jesus of Nazareth who shoulders the sin and guilt and shame of all people. This is the Jesus who stands up and says, on this day, we are more than the son of man, more than a teacher, more than a philosopher, more than a Jewish carpenter. I am the great I am. He is our king. He is your king. He is my king. And when the king is in the house, when he comes to my house, he overwhelms my expectations. He turns over my offensive things. He takes my hit. He takes my penalty. He establishes my value. He heals my heart. He confronts my issues. He commands my love. He changes 
the game. The whole game. But you say, I thought, I thought Jesus was my friend. He is, but he, he's also the king. But I thought he was the counselor. You're right. He's the counselor king. I thought he was the shepherd. Absolutely right. He's the shepherd king. I thought Jesus was the I. He is. He's the king. Who is the great? I am. That's who he is. And when the king walks into my house, there's only one place I can go. And that's to humble myself before him and say, you have authority in my life. You know the way that life works. I want to follow you. 1997, in October, they had promise keepers had a thing called the Million Man March. Some of you remember that. Came to Washington, D.C. I was there waiting for all million of you to come. And uh, I have to tell you how powerful it is to stand on the mall between between the Capitol building and the, and the Washington Monument and Lincoln Memorial. The place was jammed with hundreds of thousands of men singing songs. And, and at one point, somebody said, one of the speakers said, why don't you just shout the name of your church? And, and let's see how many different congregations. So people shouted on the count of three. First Baptist, First Church of what's happening now, Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholic, all this. And it was, it was cool that it was cacophony. It was just all kinds of this. And then he said, on the count of three, why don't we shout the name Jesus? On the count of three, hundreds of thousands of men shouted, Jesus. I mean, it rolled up 15th Street past the White House. It rolled over the Capitol. It rolled over the Lincoln Memorials. Bounced across the Potomac and hit the penny. I mean, it was just this, this thing. And then they said... We need, to, we need to bow our heads and our hearts and our bodies in his presence. So if you can, why don't you kneel? Or some of you may just want to lay down. And I'm standing over on the gravel by the Smithsonian Children's Museum. And I'm saying, well, I, you know, I'll, I'll kneel, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lay down. <laughs> and I look to my right, and there are six guys that look like hell's angels. I mean, they've got tats. They've got bandanas and chains. And, but they're Jesus lovers who look like hell's angels. And... Uh, <laughs> And I look over and all six of these guys, big guys, muscled guys, they go, bam, down on their bellies in the gravel. And I'm saying, well, that's what I was thinking. And I find myself on my face, on my face in the gravel. I got to tell you, it's a moment when hundreds of thousands of men on the mall, on the most powerful nation in the world are on their faces before their king. There's something about that. That'll make your hair stand on end, even if you don't have very much. And when, when they got ready to leave and thousands of them started walking back to the metro, uh, somebody started singing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved our wretch like me. You've never heard a choir like thousands of men walking up the streets of Washington, D.C. to the metro stops, singing in bold voices, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When the king is in the house, all bets are off. Everything changes. And I have a question for you this morning. Simple question. When the king is in your house, what does that mean for you? Let's pray. Just in the quiet of this moment, I'm, I'm going to pray. And if you identify with this prayer, just in your heart and your mind, feel free to pray with me. You may never have ever prayed a prayer before, but just 
You can practice this. I mean it, but you can. If you can identify, pray with me in your heart. King Jesus, here we are. I come to you with all of my dreams, all of my expectations. I come with my hurts and my history. And I choose this day to bend my knee before you and to claim you one more time as king. If this is my first time, I say I don't understand what that exactly means, but I need that. Thank you for working in my heart and making my heart, my mind, your home. And as you came into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago to great cheers, I cheer you in my life. Thank you for what you have done and what you are doing and what you are going to do as I submit myself to you. In your name we pray. And everyone said, Amen.